2: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest email us at spycast at spy museum.org. that's spycast at spy museum.org. also if you like what you hear and even if you don't please take a minute to review us on itunes or whatever platform you might be listening we're always looking for ways to make spycast better and you can help
3: All right, good afternoon, and welcome to the International Spy Museum. Uh, my name is Shauna Oltmans. I'm the Exhibitions and Programs Manager here at the museum. And it is my pleasure to welcome you all to the museum's inaugural Spy Chat with Chris Costa. Um, this is our very first time doing it, so this is a little bit of uh, an experiment. Uh, a lot of the program is really going to be based on the questions you all are going to ask. So if the program's not very good, it's your fault. Um, So just start thinking about those questions. Um, But uh, basically, every month, the Spy Museum Executive Director, Chris Costa, will be joined by a special guest to discuss the latest intelligence, national security, and terrorism issues in the news. Uh, This month, Chris is joined by Spy Museum Advisory Board member, Melvin Gamble who served in multiple senior executive positions during his 40-year career at the CIA. So between these two individuals we have on stage, we have a combined experience of nearly 75 years in the intelligence community. Um, The program will begin with a brief overview by Chris um, and his discussion with Mel. Uh, then we're gonna open up the floor to audience questions. So if you do have a question, we have two mics up at the front set up so you can uh, come up there and ask your question. If you do need uh, me to come to you, I'll have a handheld mic as well. Um, So with that, Let's begin. Chris, what hey, sh- intelligence stories have you been following?
4: <laughs> Shauna, thanks for the introduction. And thanks, everybody, for stepping away from work or, or popping into the Spy Museum. And it's a privilege to be up here with Mel. And I want to ask a question. Can everybody see my spy socks? All right. That's it. That was key. All right. Now that we've got that question answered, thanks for the applause. Um, let me just hit some highlights of some stories you may or may not know from last year. Then we'll c- close out from 2019, we'll just talk about the dizzying amount of stories that uh, have already hit the media this January in the new year. So I'll touch upon those, a sentence or two. I'll turn it to Mel, and then the questions come from you guys. Uh, Intelnews.org publishes a list of 10 of the most important stories of 2019. Actually, they do it every year. So I picked five of these stories that I'll touch upon that I think are important. First, there was reporting that 16 individuals from the Ministry of Petroleum in Iran, we rolled up as Western spies. You can check out that reporting. I think it's important in the context of what's going on with Iran and how Iran operates. The veracity of that can't be determined, the story, but understand that uh, Iran is frequently reporting CIA agents being arrested or Israeli agents operating against the interests of Iran. But 16 arrests is quite profound. in. A 17th was actually executed for purportedly being a CIA spy. Next story Saudi Arabia, in no particular order, by the way, Saudi Arabia hired Twitter employees to spy on users. This is an important story in terms of think about the assassination of Khashoggi, Khashoggi last year, and think in terms of Saudi Arabia reportedly wanting to find where their dissidents are in the world, and influence that, track their IP addresses, and they did it with two Saudi employees at Twitter, and a third official was associated with the Saudi government. So that's an important FBI case. And of course, no shortage of assassination stories. We already talked about the Saudi case, but let's not forget that there is a numbered. Russian organization that was revealed for the first time in Europe this past year, that is apparently conducting assassinations and disinformation operations. But the assassination story I thought that got lost in the news cycle last year is two individuals from Iran. They were from an organization called MEK, which is an opposition movement. MEK, causes a lot of problems for the current regime in Iran. They, they used to live in Ashraf, Iraq, where they were essentially refugees. Now they live in Albania, hosted by the Albanian government. That's an important story to keep your eyes on. Uh, just to digress for a second, because just this week, several Iranian officials were declared persona non grata in Albania because MEK Are targets of possible Iranian intelligence operations against them. So they're an opposition movement, the MEK. Two individuals from MEK in the Netherlands were, were operating there, or living there, and Iranian intelligence sent operators to kill them and assassinate them in the Netherlands. So two individuals that opposed the regime were assassinated not too far from The Hague in the Netherlands. That was a year ago this month. Another interesting story. A kind of a fun story in some ways. Germany's BND, which is their federal intelligence service, just established and cut the ribbon for the biggest in, intelligence building in the world, if you will. BND, German headquarters, is now in Berlin versus Munich. I feel bad. Munich is very nice. Berlin is nice, too. But I think Munich is uh, is probably more desirable for some of the employees. All that said, it says a lot about where German Germany is in the world right now and what they think they have to do with regard to intelligence collection. And a really complicated story that we can dissect a little bit is Libya. There's currently a ceasefire there. There are two factions. If we want to deep dive on who the organizations are and the importance of the story, we can do that, but different actors from different countries are supporting different sides. It's extremely complex, not to mention ISIS operates in Libya. So that was 2019. That's my top five stories of interest. 2020, we can talk about Soleimani, the strike against him. We can talk about threats from North Korea, literally on New Year's Day, I think. We should not forget about possible peace and reconciliation in Afghanistan. That's really important, right? We've been at war for 19 years. Another interesting story is the fact that the FBI arrested a Chinese scientist that director of the FBI characterizes as non-traditional collectors because this particular Chinese national was trying to board a flight with some medical research data on cancer. And he stole that data and was taking it back to China. Very interesting story. Just per- China has a pervasive intelligence collection capability to include. You can go to the into our gallery and see how uh, the Chinese collected uh, corn seed in the Midwest illegally and were arrested for that, or at least charged for it, investigated for it. It's a fascinating story. In the last two stories of interest are related to domestic terrorism. Uh, Consider Department of Homeland Security is now taking a real hard look at protecting religious groups in the United States. And that's an important story that I have some personal experience on. And I think it's a good trend, not that we need to do that, but the fact that DHS is redoubling their efforts to look at domestic terrorism and targeted violence in the United States. And the last story, Al-Shabaab, a terrorist organization that operates in Somalia. They executed, in their view, a successful operation in Kenya Sadly, three Americans were killed, I believe two contractors and one service member, in Kenya. little unusual for al-Shabaab. That's a local insurgent group that's also affiliated with, with uh, al-Qaeda that swore an oath, conducted an external operation in Kenya. So those are the stories that I'm tracking. And just a final comment, and I'll turn it over to Mel. Um, some other things that I think... We can dive a little deeper on. I mentioned it is the fallout from the Soleimani strike. Mel,
5: okay, um, that's all all great. I thought we were going to um, cross paths on some of the stuff. Um, the top topics that I saw were, uh, and I think you all probably uh, are in, gre- in agreement in looking at these already. Russia, as we well know. Has been the main uh, issue for us for, uh, for well for forever. I'm the old guard guy, so I never gave up on Russia, and I thought we should have uh, recruited all the guys we could have uh, when Soviet Union fell apart. But we have today here today, and Putin's very much aggressive and trying to regain his uh, some uh, autonomy uh, in trying to manage uh, trying to. Manage the the country and um, the oligarchy that he has, and and interfere in what's going on in the rest of the world. So economically, regional influence, and efforts to uh, uh, divide the U.S. allies in NATO and other places, the U.N., uh, Russia's become very aggressive in that. So uh, it's been in the news. I'm just sort of giving you an outline of uh, how I see. Things uh, from what happened in 2019, China again, as we all know, with the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which they've used to go uh, to um, compete uh, again economically, militarily. As as um, Chris said, uh, science and technology—that's their main key objective uh, for the U.S. Uh, trying to gain an advantage o- on that. Uh, and um, you know, they're looking to expand their influence uh, in Africa, Middle East, uh, not so much the Middle East, but Europe and, and South Asia, and even a little bit in uh, Latin America. Um, North Korea, uh, we've seen from a national security perspective that uh, they haven't abided by the promises that they've made. That continues to be an issue. Uh, and remains in, in the papers. I won't say much about Iran. I think we've covered that one enough and I think uh, with the recent events uh, uh, the only thing that I will add is as you know, the um, uh, Germany, France and uh, Britain have um, initiated uh, triggered the uh, dispute mechanism which uh, tells which uh, indicates to Iran that, uh, they violated the terms of the agreement. This is to continue to put pressure on on uh, Iran, even though they feel that they, they are justified, given uh, the recent uh, killing of uh, General Suleiman. Uh, Ukraine, I won't talk much about that. We all know what that, that issue is. If you have questions on it, I'll, I'll let Chris answer those. Uh, Syria. Uh, uh, Russia and Iran, Turkey, I think have uh, gained the most from the US withdrawal. Uh, what happens to ISIS is something that we'll continue to monitor. Um, my, my suspicion is they'll move to uh, Iraq and other neighboring countries and continue to be problematic for for us. Uh, Sudan uh, is one that I added to my list, uh, and it's because one that uh, I've followed uh, and been involved in with the comprehensive uh, agreement creating South Sudan, et cetera. But uh, the, the, the issue there is uh, it's, much, it's not just uh, Sudan that uh, uh, we should be focusing on. Uh, Egypt, UAE and um, uh, Egypt, UAE, and Saudi Arabia are three countries that have, a, have an interest in it particularly particularly Egypt, because of the, um, the water issue, which has been a, a, a long-running issue between uh, Sudan and Ethiopia. Uh, so it's one of those, uh, not so much the climate change issue, but an issue of uh, importance to, to Egypt from that perspective. Uh, Venezuela, um, again, we all know what the issue is, uh, the, uh, the U.S. government would like to see Maduro out and um, uh, a new, new government in. Uh, they put pressure, continue to put pressure on the petroleum. Uh, I think uh, at this point, uh, Venezuela uh, uh, produces about 650,000 to a, a million barrels of oil a day, all of that economically but it's going into the pockets uh, according to the government and others uh, going into the pockets of the senior officials and not not to the people uh, Cuba is a quiet one I have that on my list but it's, it's mainly because uh, uh, Cuba is partially involved in Venezuela uh, but Cuba has taken on less of a role they have their economic issues and uh, they so at this point they've been really pretty quiet. Uh, for the 20th, uh, for 2020, um, one, of my, one of my major concerns, or I think will be an issue, will be the cybersecurity threat. I think that's going to, one, uh, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and others, um, will, uh, which I haven't defined, but non-state characters who, who do this for, for money, Um, are going to be interfering in the elections, our upcoming elections, and trying to influence the elections throughout the world. And it's one of those, if we don't get a handle on it, it's it's going to be a a major crisis for us. Uh, Afghanistan, who knows what that one's going to be, too, in 2020, but I think it's one that will be in the news. Uh, We talked about Iran a little bit, but what I see is um, uh, uh, um, another problem involving Iran will be Saudi Arabia. Um, Whether MSB continues to be one of the key leaders in Saudi Arabia and how he manages that, how he manages the conservative religious groups in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it, will this open up a door for Iran rather than to come after the U.S.? We'll go after uh, some of the U.S.'s friends and create havoc that way. Um, I, I mentioned cybersecurity. One part of that that I, I uh, think will be in the news will be influence, what I call influence operations. And that's um, through the social media. And, and once again, if we do, I grew up, and one of, one of the people that I uh, admired and followed is right here in the audience, Mr. Gerber. Where we ran R- Russian, um, Russian uh, influence operations, uh, if we, R- Russia has, in my mind, the upper hand in this now. They know how to do it through social media, they're influencing uh, um, uh, various groups. I want to just take one quote. Uh, that I, that There's a book that I'm going to advocate that you read. It's called Like War. I don't know if many of you have uh, read that book. Uh, it's by, um, I'm bad on names, so I, I wrote it down. Um, Uh, P. W. Singer and Emerson T. Brooking, and it's called Like War, but it's so- about social media. And uh, one of the things that I think we're dealing with, and again, I'm going to point to uh, somebody in the audience, uh, George Jameson, who's from the, uh, from the uh, Directorate of Intelligence, a senior guy, uh, the analyst. Uh, one of the things that we're dealing with today uh, is what are facts? Um, and uh, I'm going to take a quote from Daniel uh, Moynihan, who's a famous senator from from New York. Uh, And Daniel Moynihan said, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. (laughs) And uh, today, that's a relic, because facts, after all, is a matter of consensus, and if you eliminate the consensus, and the fact becomes a matter of opinion... So we need to learn how to command and manipulate the opinion. And then you're entitled to reshape the fabric of the world. So it's a, it's a, it's a greater issue than I think we, we realize. And um, I, given the position of the Russians, I think they're going to try to take advantage of that. Uh, for, I'll, um, one more thing and then, well, two more things. I'll stop at ideology. Um, again, I'm, the, I'm one of the old guys, so uh, when growing up, we fought for democracy, against communism, and other types of uh, ideologies. Uh, I think we've tended to drop that now. And um, I think the Chinese, for example, with the authoritarian capitalism, uh, and the, Rus- the Russians, uh, who claim to be a democracy, uh, now they're attacking our democracy and raising questions about is this the right way you 'll see it when there are questions about the elections you 'll see it about whether we should have a electoral college they'll open up debates on this and try to guide it into a way that they think will will destroy it. Our job as Americans is to use the, use the media and use the internet and uh, but to ask um, Um, as many questions as possible. I'll I'll leave that having spent most of my time in Africa. One of the things that that I I learned quickly when I was in Africa and running operations was if I didn't know where a place was I wouldn't just ask one one person uh, because that person can send you down the wrong road. So I'd always ask three people and that way if two were consistent then that was the way I, I would go. So and that's kinda of how you use social media today when you when you are reading that. I don't want to lecture. I just wanted to throw out some of these things and and we can talk about
4: it. So that was great. A lot of stuff I could dive a whole lot deeper on social media. Just published a piece on that. Just came from Qatar. Qatar uh, really was a victim of a disinformation campaign directed uh, against them. And everything Mel just said is happening in real time, not just against Russia, or Russia against us, rather, as far as interference of the electoral process, but again, used as a tool by by other nations to disrupt and conduct disinformation operations to support whatever their political goals are. And that's happening right now, or it did happen in Qatar. And also to the point of non-state actors, ISIS did a f- phenomenal job of using social media in 2014 to uh, rally what looked like a large force attacking Mosul. And it was really a very small force. It was really bots and and other social media devices that were employed to inflate who they were. This is a terrorist organization. And you remember the Iraqi army at the time fled Mosul. So that just gives you just a brief sense of the vulnerability to social media and how it can be employed offensively by non-state actors as well as state actors. So we'll stop there. And Shauna, if we want to start taking really, really hard questions from the audience, we will.
3: We have two mics um, up front if you guys want to line up. Because I know I already see a bunch of folks making their way. Um, So we'll go from mic to mic. Vince, if you want to start us off with a question.
2: Hi. (laughs) I get to be first. We, we've spent 80 years now with oil being the predominant natural resource that everyone fights over. And Mel, I wanted to ask you this for a while. Time you spent in Africa, I'm wondering where are we and how close are we to where water becomes more important than oil, particularly with climate change, particularly in Africa, with so much of um, that area being dependent on, you know oil, is not the key issue. And being able to cut off the water supply, as you kind of talked about, is something that's going to start worse, I would argue, in the future. How close are we to that? I think we're closer now than we ever have been before.
5: Um, it's a great question and a, and a great issue. And it's one of those, we, again, we, we tend to get lost on the climate change part of it all, uh, which, wants, which uh, tries to force people to put it in the background. Um, but uh, a couple of things, one, uh, Water is a, is a key issue, and um, there have been a number of conferences, uh, ironically, on uh, uh, the water issue uh, because of uh, the diseases from cholera to you name it. Uh, um, that has been a major concern. Uh, AFRICOM has uh, been looking at this seriously because that's in their uh, area of um, of, um of, of working uh, and they know that when they go to some of these locations, if they had to go and and um, attack uh, a- and fight that water would would be one of the key issues there's lots of water believe it or not uh, in the in some of these areas question becomes not clean water for for some areas, and um, ironically uh, um, Gaddafi, believe it or not, in Libya, uh, started to look at. And I can I forget what they call not aqueducts. Or what do they call it's uh, underneath the
0: aquifers, aquifers, aquifers.
5: aquifers um, uh, underneath uh, in the desert of of, uh, of Libya. Uh, there are vast areas of this. It's not my area of expertise, but I was shocked at and how much was there, and and they're looking at ways of trying to exploit this, as well as uh, in, in other areas. I'm not sure if that answered all of your question, but so.
4: Thanks, Vince.
0: Chris, um, congrats on all your success. Um, Good to see you here. And uh, this is a two-parter, or not a two-parter, but a question for both you and Mel, and also for the crowd. Um, Chris and I and others here, we used to work together in the NSC, and in our morning staff meetings, we also used to comment on your socks as well. So that was the way we start the day. But this is on a more serious note. so every administration, as you both know, has tries to define its own relationship with intelligence as a discipline or in the intelligence community as an enterprise. How would you both characterize this administration's relationship um, with, again, intelligence as a discipline or the intelligence community as an enterprise?
4: So I'm going to flip it a little bit, and I'm going to answer that question like this. I get asked all the time by intelligence professionals how should they feel right now if different policy makers and different senior leaders have problems with the intelligence community writ large. And the answer I give them. All the time is consistent, and that is continue doing your job because policy makers come and go, and the ethos of intelligence officers is to deliver whether the message is well received or not. I won't I won't call out this person, but somewhere in this audience, you can figure it out, is my presidential daily briefer that came to me with the intelligence every day. And as such, as a professional, her job or his job uh, was to deliver the intelligence and really to take a whole lot of questions from me. And each policymaker is different. Uh, Each president is different, how they handle intelligence, their perceptions of the intelligence community. So the lessons to the community uh, are keep your opinions to yourself, continue to do your job, keep your opinions to yourself while you're serving in the government, clearly, and continue to do your job, because that's what the nation demands. They don't want intelligence officers to be distracted by the the political whirling whirlwind that swirls around them. right? And intelligence officers, their ethos is to not become politicized. Those briefers, in particular, have to deliver uh, a judgment and answer intelligence questions. So that's how I handle that question. And I really think that every historic user of intelligence whether that was winston churchill in the international context or its presidents of the united states i can cite where they had problems with the intelligence or they used the intelligence inappropriately or just dismiss the idea of analysis famously winston churchill uh, didn't want the analysis he wanted raw information that would make uh, an intelligence officer, an analyst in particular, extremely upset uh, because it's about the analytical product. So that's how I would answer that question, and it's a fair question. Mel, I pretty much agree with you. Uh, most, um, well,
5: speaking as an intel officer, um, w- what we kept our officers focused on was the mission, whatever that mission, the intelligence mission, uh, was, and and and. The, most of the people did do that. I'd say the majority. I'm not going to say most. Um, in terms, of, and we've seen administrations. I've seen, uh, well, uh, from Nixon to, uh, to uh, um, I was going to say Carter, but not Carter. Uh, <laughs> Clinton, thank you. Clinton, uh, Clinton did, did not like, President Clinton didn't like, he thought he, he knew it all. And I'm not saying that in a derogative way, is he was a smart person. He was a quick reader. And so he, he figured, I know all this stuff. Uh, George could probably talk more about the briefer part in briefing the, uh, the Clinton administration. But uh, I knew at that time he didn't want to meet with the director he, he he just wanted to uh, get the briefing papers and, and move on if, if that was the case, but uh, I would say this administration. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak frankly here. Uh, this administration is significantly different um, because I, I I sometimes think that they don't buy into the uh, intelligence or. Well, whether it's the Bureau, the agency, or the intelligence community. Um, and as we all know, um, when you're coming in, well, we learn, uh, when you're coming into these new positions, uh, there is a distrust. There's a ignorance about the intelligence community. Uh, so one of the first jobs for our, my DI colleagues and others is to try to uh, brief the new administration on this is the way it works and here's what we can provide you. And it's up to them to buy into that or not. Uh, if we're lucky, we have advisors and, and cabinet members and so forth that already have the experience of dealing with the uh, intelligence community and they will, uh, will try to uh, make it all work. Uh, that's, that's what it comes down to. So I'm, I don't think I'm, we're as afraid as I think a lot of people are about this current administration. Um, they buy into it when, when they need it, and they uh, leave it alone when they don't or don't, don't trust it. And there's nothing wrong with questioning any intelligence. I mean, I, I think we all look with admiration on those people that say, is that really how it is, uh, or you know, what's the facts of this? What's the basis of it, and what's the raw intelligence of it
4: all? So, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. This side.
6: <clears throat> well, um, I'm part of the old guard too. I have millennial children, uh, and I read that our younger generation is opting for communism rather than an open society. Uh, I also read that if they become aware of the facts that 95% of those, 70% of our our youth are are leaning towards um, communism. But when they understand the facts, they, 95% of those folks, young kids, end up saying, well, I wouldn't want that. It's just a matter of information. And you were talking earlier about disinformation. I I'm not trying to be editorializing, I'm trying to bring a point across. I think that our university system is a part of the problem in their worldview. But as it relates to the university system, I I see folks, our government f- focusing more on the the Russians and all, but I think our real enemy and it doesn't mean that Russia's not an enemy. I think that this has been going on forever and it's going to go on forever. But we have a real player in in China and they're in our university systems. We have the Confucius system which really is a, a marketing arm for the uh, communist government there. And that in my opinion seems like it's embedded more and more in our culture and You spoke to it, Chris, so I wanted to get an opinion, an idea of what we're doing to combat the Chinese Communist influence, in a sense, in our bedrooms and in our living
4: rooms. Thank so, you. that's a really tough question, so I'm going to just tackle a piece of it, and this goes back to my learning on disinformation, and you got to the heart of the issue. It, it, social media, I think, is is the subterranean force here, right? The idea that social media gives people choices, that's a problem because right now, the United States in particular, but not just the United States, there's a lot of polarization in the world, in particular in the United States right now, and people are tending—young and elderly too—are going to their own news outlets, and they're satisfying their own preconceived notions on what facts are. That what—that's what I think is a problem, and I don't know the answer. That's what makes us vulnerability or vulnerable. I'm sorry to disinformation, uh, because we are searching out. Uh, information that supports our own thesis, our own ideas, and that means intelligence services can target pockets of people if you they can go to the right social media platform, they can go to the right news outlet and so disinformation so in the future what 's going to need to happen, and this is one of my solutions that i don 't have a, an entire um, answer to and that's the idea that open source intelligence and a public affairs posture from the US government and other governments needs to identify where where information is not factual that's a large task, right? They have to identify where disinformation is. And that's difficult for an intelligence service to transition to doing more open source intelligence and then turning around and identifying disinformation. And I don't have the answer, but that is a problem. So it's a problem of social media, it's a problem of access, and it's a problem of collecting information that supports your own biases, prejudices, and and desires for facts, and it is a challenge, but it makes it a lot easier for people trying to sow disinformation uh, like foreign intelligence services. The social aspects of what you say i 've heard some i 've read some of the uh, the percentages of uh, of people that are polled on thoughts on communism. None of that really bothers me because I think over time we're gonna be able to withstand that kind of test just because of who we are as a democracy. These things pass and they ebb and flow. If you look at the long arc of history, look at the American Civil War, look at pre-World War II, we've had some tough spots uh, across our citizenry, to include with veterans rioting here in Washington D.C. on a large scale, so I think these things shall pass. Any thoughts on that, Mel? No?
5: Yeah, I, you you covered it exactly how I would. I think growing up, when when I remember when I was a young college student, um, and it was in the '60s. So, um, and in the '60s, you know, as a young black student, I was. Uh, you know, pro-black, pro, uh, you know, it was Marxism was was better than what we had because it, and you go through this in, in college and the great thing about college as far as I'm concerned is it forces you to think. It forces you to look at not only the way that you believe but the way others believe and somewhere you kind of come out, you know, where you should be on, on things, at least that's, that's what I believe. It, it, it opens up the mind to it. And um, for, so for college students, I'm, I'm not worried about them. Uh, it's, it's a process, uh, and as we get older, yeah, I became more conservative, and I worry about my money, you know. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, and and how I'm going to live, and 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 that those types of things. Uh, but as as Chris said, I mean, you've said all the things that I would have said on social media. There is oh, one thing. Just uh, um, I, I have made a note of it because I was fascinated by it, um, and I'll try to be quick on this. Uh let's see this is wasn't about facts. Um, one second. Anyway, what it was was uh, it, it, there were three groups they did a study on. I think they were uh, PhD students. Uh, graduate students, and a group of fact-finders. And so what they did was they gave them uh, uh, some information and said, uh, validate this information. Uh, The PhD students and the college students went on the Internet, looked at it, and said, this is is correct. The fact-finders went to the Internet, looked at it, and then went to three or four other sources and found out that this wasn't true. So the, the point being in all of this is we and the US government, we need to figure out a way to educate our people into looking at information and deciding how to, how to filter it to what's, what's correct or at least what's not biased uh, uh, in, in doing so. And and we already do this um, when again I go back to when I was a kid and college student, and reading uh, I'd read the New York Times and I'd read the Washington Post and and you look you read the articles and you one of my professors always said see who the writer is and look at the writer's background and if the writer has written 10 articles about it from this direction, then you know where this art writer is coming from on, on these these articles. So that helps you form at least you, uh, an idea of where the, they're going. And and if you want a different perspective on it, read the, these people. You may not agree with them, but read them anyway. And I, I, I just think that we need to re-educate, or at least continue to educate, our uh, Everyone, not just our students, but everyone on when they're reading uh, the media and so forth.
7: We'll be right back after this.
1: The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work.
4: So I really appreciate everybody's patience. So we'll, we'll go a little quicker so we can get to you guys because you're standing up. Yeah. Okay. So
8: uh, Well, first, I just want to say it's an honor to be here with my two young sons and husband and hear um, about this fascinating piece of y'all and your colleagues that have taken very complicated international um, issues and uh, distilling them for us to understand how complicated it is what you all have gone through. And I guess my question is, and it keeps the American ideology and our allies alive and well, and that's what I want for my children and the future. And my question is, especially since you all have been doing this for decades, what do you see the impact of the media in general, and social media specifically, today versus 30, 40, 50 years ago when you didn't deal with the same issues? Has it been a hindrance to things um, in that there's so much information or has it been very helpful on um, for from y'all solving some of the problems and the tough situations you have?
4: I want me to tackle that first, so that's an excellent question. So in short, I would say, and in general, the world's become more complicated because the amount of information that's out there. You know, we talked already about the dynamic of social media, so that has significantly changed the way we collect information, the way we fact check. So my world that I grew up in has significantly changed. Uh, At the same time, analysts have an incredible Uh, Wealth of resources to sift through but it's a lot of information to sift through of course We have analytics in what's really going to change the world of analysis and I'm not an analyst But you get a sense for this when you go through our museum and you look at making sense of secrets because that is so crucial this idea of artificial intelligence, that's going to help the human being, that's going to help find those data points. So that's one point. Now, operationally, I was, I talked about this at a, uh, on a podcast last week on Skullduggery. There's been some articles that talk about the challenges to intelligence officers to have some kind of and i'm speaking very broadly here deliberately but the idea of having backstopping who you say you are can be checked you have to have some kind of digital footprint you have to have online presence That has changed the way intelligence officers have to operate. At the same time, on the other end of the spectrum is the idea that people use social media allows intelligence officers to offensively learn so much about a a target of an intelligence operation. So the world has changed significantly, and everything I'm sharing with you is a change as a result of technology. None of these issues existed in the 1990s, for example, other than we started to see that there, there was a lot of intelligence uh, that had to be sifted through and that intelligence officers had to, in the words of Bob Gates, they had to cover the waterfront because you didn't know what would be missed. So intelligence officers were worried about climate change, they were worried about Russia. So they had to do a lot of work, but social media hadn't even come along. It wasn't even a term of art. So that's how I'd answer your question. I know it's only a partial answer, but that's how I think about yeah, it. That's it. Mel? You've answered I think Thank you. I agree with it. Thank you. This is probably going to be very short, and you may not be able to answer it. I was fascinated when uh, we heard that uh, General Soleimani had been killed, and I wanted to find out more about him. Um, So I hit the internet and I went to press and I went to books. And what I came away with was that he ran proxy armies all over the world, including some operations into Central and South America. And the one thing that caught my attention was that he seemed to be able to work with both Sunni and Shia, which makes him, in my opinion, a fairly dangerous character. How close am I to what you guys know? So I'll just offer this. So you're right, uh, Soleimani had a worldwide footprint. You're right that he Uh, was very much involved with proxy armies. That's what made him such a significant threat and what I think to be a very viable target, not to mention that his actions directly contributed to Americans, a number of Americans dying and being maimed horrifically. Um, I think that um, anyone who comes from the Middle East is adept at understanding Cross-cultural differences, and certainly somebody like Soleimani w- would understand how to navigate the Sunni world as well. That comes part and parcel with living in that part of the world. But he was a dangerous combination of a Special Operations commander, a CIA or a foreign intelligence service director, and and a, a general officer, and. Uh, We've been in a shadow war for decades, and uh, he was the face of that, and I think it was a viable target. So I take that to mean that I didn't get any fake facts? I don't think so with what you've shared.
3: (laughs) I will say we've got about 10 minutes left, so with the four questions we have remaining, we'll end with you four.
4: Yeah, thank you. Um, We're not a tag team, but I also had a question about General Soleimani. Um, last week in the newspapers after he was assassinated, said he was linked to this um, um, plot to assassinate the Saudi uh, embassy, Saudi ambassador at Cafe Milano here in Georgetown. Um, It was a very detailed story, but there was never a follow-up. And it said, this is huge, because if this had been successful, many innocent people would have died. Um, And uh, you know, this was uh, uh, could have been a game-changer in terms of U.S.-Saudi relations, et cetera. Could you please comment on that? I would like to comment first just... Just uh, And I do this gingerly. I want to correct you. In my view, it wasn't an assassination. It was a, a legitimate direct action by the U.S. government. That's my assessment. Other people have taken the view to include people who have interviewed me who have said that it's their view it's an assassination. In my view, it was a proportionate uh, attack to take a viable target out. Excuse me, correction. It was more the attack uh, uh, put, uh, on the Saudi Arabia. you referring to Sa- no, Saudi I understand ambassador, that. not the general. I understand that, but when you talk about Soleimani, mm-hmm. and, uh, I want to reiterate that he was a viable target. But to your point, th- that particular incident in Saudi Arabia, it's co- consistent with other planning that's been unfoiled throughout mm-hmm. the world, not just with Iran. Uh, Iran IRGC Quds forces, but as well as as, uh, Hezbollah who are proxies mostly uh, from Lebanon. So those kinds of things and attack planning have taken place globally. They build the infrastructure and they wait for a trigger. We don't We, the international community as well, who cooperate on counterterrorism issues, we don't know what those triggers are for them to act. But in the particular case that you're citing, which was pre-operational planning to kill and assassinate the Saudi ambassador, that was uh, widely known and widely reported. And, uh, of course, it, it just made a a splash for a short time, then we all moved on because the the plot was foiled. Had it happened, you're right, I think that would have been catastrophic because the Iranians were willing to kill innocent civilians to go, to go after their target. They weren't willing to be discriminating and, and killing their specific target, target, which is wrong in and unto itself but it's not as damning as killing um, innocent Americans and tourists from other places in the world. Thank you. Did you want to add something, Mel? No, no, you okay. hit that one, too. So.
7: Hello, I wanted uh, to raise a question about Iran, but in connection with that, I wanted to give an addendum to one of the earlier comments about MEK. In uh, When I lived in Iran, MEK, was, uh, it's true that today MEK is strongly anti-clerical, but when I lived there, it was strongly anti-Shah. And during that time, when I was there, they were assassinating Iranian generals, admirals, and judges, in addition, six Americans, three military officers, and three American businessmen. And they tried very hard to assassinate a CIA officer. It's the only time in my life outside of the army when I carried a weapon. Mujahideen al Halk is a terrorist organization. It is not good guys. And I just wanted to make that point. If they tried to kill me, I don't like them. Uh, uh, My question about Iran has to do with the uh, uh, killing of General Soleimani. Um, That doesn't change the fact that Quds and the Iran government are heavily involved in um, anti-American interests in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen. And as uh, one of the speakers noted also in Latin America, but more particularly in those other areas. And so my question is ideas that you uh, all may have about what the U.S. can do with diplomacy, with intelligence, with special operations to hinder what they're doing with, uh, particularly in Lebanon, it's serious threat to Israel and to the government of Lebanon and to American interests. What can be done?
4: That's a loaded question. I'll tackle... I, I do want to, because w- our role is to educate the public and and, and um, provide some clarity, right? So I want to talk about the MEK. First of all, anybody that's going to try to kill Burton is, is not a friend of mine, right? Um, but I want to put a fine report on MEK, just a little more history. MEK was considered a terrorist organization. They're bad actors, right? And that's why they were in a very interesting status where they were opposed to Iran and they were in the country of Iraq, where Iran was consistently trying to kill people that are associated with the MEK. They ultimately came off the terrorist list. That doesn't mean they're good guys. It means they're no longer considered a terrorist organization, and the problem was to move them out of the region, and then a country uh, aligned with the United States or a friend on counterterrorism matters, the country of Albania, took the MEK because it's a problem. Nobody in the world wanted MEK because of the problems they sow. And they went to Albania, all 3,000 of them, in the Iranian government's still trying to kill the MEK. So that's the world we're in. That's kind of the history of MEK. And insofar as your question, that's a loaded question on what we need to do. But I think that um, from a foreign policy standpoint, I think that much remains to be seen. That's not a cop-out. But the fact that Soleimani was struck, the fact that, to use General Petraeus's um, paraphrase an article he just published, Deterrence is Back. And my s- central premise is for 40 years, all we've done is complained that Iran's behavior hasn't changed. We've put sanctions upon sanctions against Iran. So I think less special operations, but more pressure is going to cause, I think, in time, Iran to come to the table. Um, Whether it was deliberate or not, it's an open question. You can decide the decision linked to a good foreign policy strategy. I don't know the answer to that, but I think that this could bring Iran to the table. It's certainly a change in our behavior towards Iran. Insofar as special operations, our special operations in Syria where Iran operated as proxies aligned with our interests, but not partners, going after ISIS. So let me say that again. Iran went after ISIS, just like we did in Syria. And we managed to avoid a good deal of confrontation. Um, But that's that gray zone I kind of alluded to, this idea of a battle for influence that continues on the ground in Syria. I can tell you from a policy standpoint, what we did against Hezbollah was putting focusing not on kinetic, not on strikes, but we focused on sanctions and rewards for justice to identify Hezbollah uh, terrorists that have blood on their hands. And we have to work really closely with the Lebanese government, as you know, because here's the other problem. Hezbollah, who's also a terrorist organization, is also part of the Lebanese government, who are great partners with the United States. It is a tough part of the world. But Special Operations principally was focused on ISIS, and I think that's where we're going to continue our focus rather than direct confrontation with Iran, although we're prepared to do that, I think, as demonstrated by that strike. So a lot remains to be seen. These are all good questions, and I don't have the answers to all those questions, Mel?
5: Just a little bit to add to that would be a greater. I know that we're focused on it from the intelligence perspective, but I, I still think that uh, we can do better in that area. We've, we've taken some hits on it. Uh, and But diplomacy, and when I say diplomacy, it's not just talking, but a much more aggressive um, role uh, from the diplomacy uh, perspective. Um, I, I tend to follow the lead of one of, one of uh, one of my friends and, and colleagues I, I took this course state course it was a nine month senior seminar course and we there were 33 of us and um, one of the uh, uh, one of my colleagues uh, was one of the prisoners uh, uh, during the 79 uh, embassy takeover and and he uh, he always felt that uh, having been a prisoner, you would have thought he would have been the anti-Iran person. But he, again, he, he always advocated diplomacy, uh, looking, figuring out a way to uh, get at Iran because Iran has this persecution complex, according to him, on, um, uh, because everyone wants to take over Iran or, or influence it or control it. And so trying to figure that part out, and I don't know the answer to it, but I, it's the diplomacy, it's the sanctions, it's a combination of things that I think we'll have to have to go after them.
4: And again, just to put a finer point on this idea of a gray zone, General Votel, who ran the war in Afghanistan and uh, controlled the fight against ISIS for the United States, he called it a gray zone conflict because it's a battle for influence and really what you're getting at burton is there is a battle for influence and i'm not sure anybody knows the blueprint for how we're going to counter that influence in the future particularly when when i think there's a pull to get troops out of the middle east and and I, i'm not sure in some you know some respects i i think that's consistent with the, what the american people want so we'll we'll watch all this play out
0: Chris, thanks. Um, as you know, one of the sort of the persistent national security challenges uh, is how to craft an effective um, you know, national security strategy or an effective foreign policy that still aligns with the America first ethos of the current administration. Um, and so when we look across the world you know, this morning, um, we see uh, you know, China, uh, which has sort of insidiously um, uh, wrapped its tentacles throughout Africa, Uh, We see Libya, which you mentioned earlier, which is increasingly looking more like a proxy war, uh, in which Russia um, has a a strong role. Uh, And then uh, on the ground in Syria uh, right now, military installations, which were once places where our troops were, are now occupied by Russian troops. To what degree is the United States being displaced by peer competitors in the world, and at what and should we worry? Is, is this trajectory worrisome to you at all? And, and, and what do you think about our, 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 our posture
4: moving forward? Boy, that's a loaded question. I should let Mel answer it. I I think, uh, but it's a great question. So let me go back to the national security strategy that was rolled out in the first year of the administration. It recognized the dynamic of great power competition. At the same time, the people that focused on counterterrorism some people in this room and that was my role at the white house we were concerned with making sure that counterterrorism remained a very important part of our our long-term strategy to keep americans safe and those capabilities weren't decremented as i saw it and i think our strategy says all the right things and from what i can observe as an outsider i think the implementation of our counterterrorism strategy is absolutely in a very good place that said what what's a tough question is what does a a, a American first strategy mean when we want to withdraw from places in the world and yet compete with China Russia in other uh, Significant competitors that are out there. I th- I would encourage people to go to the national security strategy where we lay that out. And uh, I I would say that in, this is in quotes: endless wars don't help. That don't that they don't help us as a nation prioritize. I think that General Mattis, Secretary Mattis at the time, was very much focused on pivoting. Consistent with that national security strategy towards superpower competition, great power competition, as they call it. And I think we're seeing some of that with the acknowledgement that we have to focus on trade and. E- economic economic intercourse those c- commerce those kinds of things so that's a long-winded way of saying one it's a com- it's complicated it is another we have to wait and see uh, as the dust settles but i think that we are aligned to reprioritize to focus on the bigger threats we don't want our nation to focus exclusively on counterterrorism i certainly didn't want that but we also want to keep the nation safe from attacks at the same time we don't want to focus on Russia, because we don't want to treat them like they're a great power. But China seems to be that looming great power. And I think there's a lot of talk about about, uh, how do we counter that, non-militarily, by the way. So I, I think the words are in the National Security Strategy, and I think this is a work in progress. And it's only been four years in the current administration. And we don't know what's going to happen at the following four years. But I think some of this is going to bear out over time.
5: So I may jump in on this one. The, uh, and, and I agree with the uh, America First. We should be looking at, at how how we should not be the, the policemen of the, of the world. I mean, in the old days, we could do that. Today has changed. And, uh, and I do believe that we should, uh, the European countries should take a greater role in some of these issues as as well as others uh, to to compete. You know it's one thing, and I think we're at, at, in part to blame for it because we we took on that role and we let them use their economies to do whatever uh, was in their best interest. Uh, so that has to change, but at the same time, um, if you do the American first. Uh, You got to have a plan on where do you go from here with it and who's going to do it. Uh, That's the part I think we're we're lacking on. Um, One problem and growing up in in the intel community and watching uh, a lot of these issues, uh, I've always been puzzled by uh, chasing the shiny object, as as we used to say. Uh, So uh, in the 90s, it was counter-narcotics. Then counter-terrorism came along. And in probably ten years from now, it'll be something else. Um, but if we have on the national intelligence strategy all of these things up there, uh, I'm, I'm puzzled by why we can't do them all. Maybe not with the same priority. But if there's a counter narcotics problem, which there is, uh, and we had we had a good handle on that, why uh, why have we let that uh, sort of fall by the wayside. Uh, and the same thing may happen with counterterrorism. I, I would like to see a consistent across-the-board things at those eight or 10 key areas that, that we say are, are priority intelligence priorities and, and continue to do that. Sure, the president, if he says or she says, I want to um, uh, counterterrorism will be, the, during this administration, the key issue, that's fine. But these other things we still should be doing, and we tend to let them fall by the wayside. That's my only, that's my complaint, not, not anyone else's. Yes, ma'am.
3: There have been six Chinese nationals who have been arrested at a military base in Key West and at Mar-a-Lago in the last year or so. They haven't been charged with espionage or being a foreign agent. And there hasn't been any public indication yet that these people are trained spies, um, except perhaps in one of the cases. Do Chinese tourists, researchers, and students who are collecting information pose more or less of a threat because of how many of these cases there are um, than trained Chinese spies who are operating in the US?
4: Do you want to take that one? I'll take that one. So, <laughs> um,
5: the Chinese use all of those, all of those that you mentioned: students, researchers, um, you name it. Uh, so it's not just um, uh, MSS uh, intelligence people, officer, intelligence yeah. officers that that are, are involved in this. Uh, and the Chinese are very good at it. Um, I was just talking maybe a month or so ago with a colleague who uh, looks at the security for the uh, national labs, and um, it, it's it. I think the the national labs are finally getting it because what what happens is there's an exchange of information. Uh, we when the Chinese send uh, their researchers to work in some of these labs, they. Um, they we figure out what they're um, what they're interested in, and so that gives us some insight on what they don't know and what they know. Uh, but at the same time, we're giving up a lot on it. So there's always a debate, and when people live in their world, as the scientists do, uh, they're just looking at uh, how much we can we can gain. Everybody can gain from it, which ideally should be the way it works, but. But it doesn't. So um, in part, to answer your question, is uh, yes, the Chinese are very aggressive in in using everyone that they can to uh, to gain an advantage uh, uh, from science and technology in the U.S. So. Check
4: out that New York Times article, if you haven't already seen it, on the arrest that took place up in Boston, and, and uh, FBI Director Ray's comments that these are non-traditional collectors, <laughs> but the, this is our competition out there. These are the, are, are the issues that the FBI are contending with. So it's not just state secrets, it's also research secrets, mm-hmm. but it's theft nonetheless. Sir. Last this question, will be our right? last question. Yeah. We went a little over, but this is fun for us. Thank you. Hi. Um,
9: so actually, you started to answer my question before I could ask it. But um, I'm very interested in whatever else you can say, both of you, about the um, CIA's counter-narcotics efforts and the Organized Crime Center, which is also you know, uh, up to mission status, I, I think. Um, and both of those have been active for decades now. Um, and and as you said, uh, we might have let uh, counter narcotics fall by the wayside. A former top intelligence official, I think she was the DNI uh, mission manager for counter narcotics, wrote an op-ed in the Pittsburgh paper recently, saying, "Here's six things that we could be doing on the fentanyl crisis that we're not doing." Uh, but I also know, as a journalist, that there's a lot of cases, including Hezbollah, where um, you know the law enforcement efforts against some of these targets—Hezbollah, uh, Colombian, the FARC sometimes run into collection uh, uh, efforts by the US government. So you have the DEA person, or even the CIA counter-narcotics person, working to go after people that might be um, intelligence assets of the US government. So, but more interested mostly in, in what what are, how does that work, what, how, what does the CIA do overseas on counter-narcotics, and what could it be doing more of?
5: Um, well, I serve in Mexico, so that should give you a handle. Yeah. The, <laughs> um, the uh, and w- and I'll be perfectly honest. When when I served in Mexico in the '90s, and when when I first went there, me- uh, counter narcotics. I mean, in Mexico, it was a high priority, but for for agency officers, it was not a high priority. You know, we wanted to go after the Russians, the right. Chinese, the. Sure. You know, Cubans and, and all, all the bad guys. Uh, but then we saw what it was doing to, to the U.S., the damage that, that it was doing with the drugs, uh, cocaine, heroin, etc. And so the, our objective was to take down the cartels as, as much as possible. Uh, actually, someone else had raised it in a question, uh, which I, I meant to comment on, one of the first things we learned was that um, you know the, 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 the Colombians, for example, would ship 10 tons of c- cocaine in, into the U.S. on a, on a plane and submarine, <coughs> or however they, they could get it in. And 10 tons is a lot of cocaine. Yeah. Um, but uh, if they lost 10 tons, it was nothing, because they could get 10 more tons. So we started off working with the DEA on this, and the DEA was looking at the takedown of, of um, capture of all these drugs and so forth. But we, uh, and at first it was competitive, uh, but then we, we sat down and we talked about it, and we said, we've got to work better on this. We still want to take down the drugs, but we saw the money as the key part of it, mm-hmm. and so we started because the, the Colombians and the Mexicans they would kill each other if they couldn't um, if they lost the money. L- losing ten tons of cocaine was nothing, which is shocking uh, for any one of us, but for them it was the money. So we started to focus on on, on the money part, and uh, but the one thing we learned, uh, as I said, someone had mentioned uh, about. Uh, the Iranians working, Sunnis working with Shia. The cartels would use similar uh, money launderers. Uh, they didn't care. They so we were looking at it vertically, but they were working laterally on a lot of these things. So, so we had to figure out then how do we get at get at these people? Um, we started. We started. We started to have some success at. And, but as, as you've noted, um, when counterterrorism, the embassies were attacked, and then 9-11 happened, uh, this tended to drop by the wayside. But uh, when you look back over the past, uh, in 2017, 70,000 Americans died from uh, drug overdoses. Uh, small number, given the, the, the population, but not a small number when you're talking about the loss of life mm. over drugs. And that says nothing about the, the drug addicts and uh, people uh, with these issues. So how do we get back to that? Again, it's um, uh, trying to get the administration, the government to, to focus on, on these issues um, and people speaking up about it. Uh, fortunately, the fentanyl issue, uh, everyone's focused on that. But still, cocaine's coming in, heroin's coming in, uh, meth is coming in, and 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 these guys are good. I mean, uh, they they have intelligence organizations that are, can compete with a lot of intelligence organizations in in the world. That's what people don't realize about the these cartels. I'll stop in a minute, but. Here, an oh, example, when yeah. we were going after the uh, one of the Mexican cartels, uh, we found out, one, they sent people to law school at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and so forth. And these guys came back, and then some became legislatures. What they do? They want to change the laws in their country so that drugs aren't le- illegal. Uh, and so... Then, you, you know, we're beating up on the Mexicans to arrest these guys when the laws have been changed because these guys have done it. They send, uh, again, uh, people to MIT, uh, some of the best colleges in the world, for as uh, chemists, so that then the docs that we use to sniff out various things, they know how to defeat that. So this is not just a... a a simple solution of bad guys just uh, importing or, or bringing in drugs, uh, it's a war, as they, as they said back then, and it continues to be that. So oh,
9: thank I uh, hope
5: that answers.
9: Oh, yeah, no, that's great.
4: Did you want to? I don't have anything to add on the counter-narcotics mm-hmm. fight. Uh, if you want to see the result of an operation that was done with DEA, you can go into License to Thrill. There's a little vignette mm-hmm. of an operation that really was done with DEA, but it was rolling up an IED network, an explosives network, yeah. but it started with the DEA so- source, and that underscores the idea that there's cooperation. Terrorists can sometimes peddle drugs, and yeah. that was my first opportunity to ever work operationally with the DEA in Afghanistan. So right. that's the extent of my experience, really a counterterrorism experience. So. I I know that we want to close out on this. Thank you very much. I apologize for going long. I just want to thank Mel, too, because we don't have presidential daily briefers coming to us every day, so this is all about keeping up with the media, and uh, we had fun doing it, and uh, we will continue to do this each month. We'll assess the program, but thank you all for coming out today. Shauna. And
7: thank you,
3: Chris and Mel. You guys are wonderful.
4: Thank you. The International Spy Museum is
2: a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.
6: Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your
5: feedback now.